morning. This, uh, the theme for this week in the season of Advent, this third Sunday in the season of Advent, is joy. We lit the candle of joy, the pink candle earlier in uh, the service. And for years, I used to wonder, why, why do we light the candle of joy the third week of Advent and not the fourth? I mean, it seems to me that if we're getting closer to Christmas, we should light it right before Christmas, because that's when you, you, know, you feel the most joy about these sorts of things. Uh, and in fact, I've heard of several churches who, um, forgive my snobbery, incorrectly light the uh, pink candle on the fourth Sunday of Advent. And, and why would they do this? Because it just seems to make more sense that uh, we should wait until the last possible moment when all the waiting is over and then we light the candle of joy and then we celebrate uh, Christmas. But there is wisdom in doing this on the third Sunday of Advent. For one thing, to rejoice, to rejoice when we're not quite there is what real life in the real world is like. We, we know something good is coming, but there's still some waiting to do. We, we live in the midst of a world that is, is not what it should be, not what it will one day be. So it's good for us to pause a bit before, while we are still in the darkness, so to speak, to remind ourselves to rejoice. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. We, we remind ourselves that even when things are dark or difficult, the Lord is near. And so we rejoice as we remember that one day things will be as God intends them to be. One day God will finish the work that he has begun in us and God will bring about what the Apostle Paul refers to as a reconciliation of all things in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and what the Apostle Peter refers to as the restoration of all things in the book of Acts chapter 3. John Lennon supposedly put it this way, though he took it from someone else, a Portuguese author named Fernando Sabina, so let's give him some credit there. Uh, but this is what he said, uh, it'll be okay in the end, if it's not okay, it's not the end. I actually can't find where he said that, but everybody says he said that. Julian, Julian of uh, Norwich, an English mystic in the 1300s, and if you have to choose between your English people to listen to on these things, let's go with, uh, I like John Lennon, but let's go with Julian of Norwich. Uh, she said she had a vision back in the 1300s in which Jesus said something to her, it's, there's more to it than this, but all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Even when things that are at their darkest, there is reason to rejoice. Why? Because the Lord is near. Because the Lord is near. And because Christ will one day return and make all things right. As we come to Isaiah 35, we will discover that he is speaking to a people who are in dark times. But he, like Paul, like Peter, like Julian of Norwich, and even to some degree John Lennon, he's saying to them, look, rejoice, all will be well in the end. In 587 B.C., I've said this before, I'm going to say it again every year about this time because it's important that we understand the context of these things. In 587 B.C., the Babylonians will conquer Jerusalem, they will destroy the temple, they will take people into exile. Isaiah is writing these words from chapter 35, uh, 100 years, more than 100 years before that time. 
But the imagery is clearly aimed at people who are in exile and long to go home. The people who were initially taken into exile were taken there as a part of God's discipline. But now, nearly 70 years later, those people are no longer living. They are a good three generations removed from those first exiles. The people now living there, most of them at least, have no memory of that whole event. They're just stuck in Babylon. They're tired, they're weary, they're frightened. They've they've heard tales of home. They've heard songs of home. They've heard stories of what life used to be like in Jerusalem and Judah, what it was like to worship in the temple, but they've never seen it, let alone experienced it. And so they need a message of hope. They need a reason to rejoice. They, They need to know that the darkness is almost over. And so Isaiah gives these exiles hope and encouragement. God will return them home and so much more. God will bring them home, but there's so much more to it than that. And what we'll see as we walk through this song of hope is that, like last week's passage in Isaiah chapter 11, the message speaks to three horizons. Isaiah's words spoke to the people of ancient Judah whose grandparents were sent into exile, the first horizon. His words spoke to the people of God and their neighbors some 570 years or so later, the second horizon, at the coming of Christ. And his words speak to us today about a day in the future when God will recreate everything, a new heavens and a new earth, the third horizon. On this Lights of Hope Sunday, we sit between the second and third horizons. We are are given freedom and space to acknowledge in this season that sometimes we too feel as if we're in exile. Here we can name our grief and our pain and our sorrow And we can find hope and mercy and possibly even a bit of joy. We can be honest about our loss and we can receive God's comfort and get a picture of where God is taking all things, the destination above all other destinations. And that's exactly what God does for us in chapter 35 of Isaiah. Through Isaiah, God gives us a tangible image of hope God takes the very things that were decreated, and we didn't read it, but we're going to give you a little bit of review. God takes the very things that were decreated in chapter 34 of Isaiah, and in chapter 35, he restores them. Chapter 34, if you were to take time to read it, you would see is a picture of judgment. Streams of water are turned into dry land, overwhelmed by the heat of the desert. It's a picture of a fortress, a citadel that is overtaken by thorns and wild animals. It's a home for the the desert owl and for a haunt for jackals, it says. A jackal, in case you're wondering, I had to look it up. It's a cross between a dog and a wolf. They hunt at night, they scavenge, they eat whatever they find. In the biblical uh, writings, they are associated with destruction and ruins and the desert. But in Isaiah 35, God promises to change all of that. Verses 1 and 2. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Back when we lived in Cleveland, um, somebody told me that I should, in the fall, I should plant a bunch of crocuses all over my backyard, just randomly. 
I asked them why. They said, because uh, in late winter, early spring, before anything else is growing, before you have to worry about mowing the grass, the crocuses will pop up and just have this beautiful picture of flowers all over your backyard to give you a little bit of hope. Crocuses typically bloom in February. They can bloom as early as January, depending on where you live. They would provide a hint of spring, a hint of new life, even while the winter was still with us. So I planted some. And sure enough, the next year, well before anything else began to grow, crocuses began to pop up all over my yard. A bit of mercy in the bleak midwinter. A bit of hope amid the winter of grief and the longing for spring. And I I sometimes chuckle. We've uh, not lived there in over 15 years. I sometimes chuckle about what the subsequent owners of the house may have thought when they looked out in their, their back window and saw all these flowers popping up throughout the yard without warning. How did they view them? I like to think they multiplied. <laughs> How did they view them? As a bit of an annoyance or as a glimmer of good things to come? The same is true of these opening words in Isaiah 35. They are crocuses of prophetic promises. Spring is on the way. That's only the beginning of the good news. It gets even better for those who are in exile and for us too. As I said, toward the end of exile, the people were three generations removed from the people who were first conquered and captured in Babylon. They they, want to know when it's going to end. For them, it seems like they've been there forever. For them, it may seem like God has abandoned them and they're just stuck there. And so now, after a hint of hope, Isaiah exhorts them to encourage one another. And his words sound as if they are directed to those who will be traveling in this return from exile back to Jerusalem. Or perhaps, perhaps by the time they hear these words, they're actually already on the way and they need to be encouraged. So, verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the feeble hands... Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. These words are directed to a frightened and weak people more than 500 years before the coming of Christ, and they still speak to us today. To the people in exile during Isaiah's day, these these words promised that God was at work, that that they could be encouraged that one day God would rescue them. Yes, it's still very much night, but the dawn is not far away. To the people of Jesus' day and those of us who live in between that time and when Jesus returns, these words promise us that in Whatever way that the the world around us is deforming and decreating and encroaching upon us, we too can know God's comfort even now. We can know that God's Spirit lives within us to strengthen our feeble hands, to steady our knees when they want to give way, and to encourage our fearful hearts to be strong and not to fear that God will come to us as well. Bernard of Clairvaux, who, who lived between the 11th, or during the 11th and late 11th and early 12th centuries, says that Christ comes to us in three ways. Christ comes to us uh, as, as the baby born in the manger in Bethlehem. Christ will come to us again when he returns, and in our everyday lives, uh, lives Christ comes to us now. Christ continues to come to us as we walk the road between his first coming and his second coming. So far in this beautiful poem, dry desert landscape has begun to bloom. 
We have been promised that we will see the glory of God in a once desolate place. We have been encouraged and strengthened by the promise that God will come and rescue us in our distress, in in whatever form our personal exiles might take. And now we are promised that this restoration will not only be for the landscape or the re- and the return to the land, it will also involve the restoration of human beings to their original design. Verses 5 and 6, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And suddenly, suddenly this sounds a bit like our second scripture reading today from Matthew chapter 11. <clears throat> For the writers of the New Testament clearly saw the promises of Isaiah 35 coming true in the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew 11, in Matthew 11, John the Baptist has been put in prison. <clears throat> and he has heard about the deeds that Jesus is doing, the, the miraculous powers that are at work in his life, in his ministry, but he's confused. John the Baptist is confused. Maybe he was expecting the Messiah to do something different, or maybe now that he's in prison, he's wondering if this is really how things are supposed to be when the Messiah is on the scene. Shouldn't things be getting better? I can imagine many of us have questioned whether or not God knew what he was doing, or whether or not what was happening was what God wanted uh, to happen for us whenever we face sorrow or pain or opposition, we, we, we find ourselves overwhelmed by our circumstances. <clears throat> Maybe that's what John the Baptist was dealing with when he sent some of his own disciples to ask Jesus about these things. If you're the Messiah, Jesus, why am I in prison? Why haven't things changed? I thought it was supposed to get better. John's disciples arrive and ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Matthew 11, verses 4 and 5. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Several of the kinds of things Jesus describes are lifted right out of Isaiah 35. And a few more things are added, some of them taken from other places in the prophets in Isaiah. Not only will the land be restored, but humanity along with it will be restored. But notice that the imagery changes at the end of verse, keep, uh, verse 6, keeping in mind that the verses weren't there originally, they were added later. Isaiah goes from talking about the healing of human beings in miraculous ways to talking about the restoration of the wilderness and the landscape again. And that's going to bleed over into verse 7. So we'll back up just a bit, just to keep things in context. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground, bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. I want us to notice a couple things about this section. First, notice how this section reaches back to something that we didn't read, but I already mentioned to you, back in Isaiah 34. Back in Isaiah 34, verse 9, one chapter before, we would read there that Edom's streams will be turned into pitch. Edom is a nation that's often used just to stand in for all the nations. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, pitch being a dry ground or field, the way the British would refer to the field in which cricket or football are played. But here, the burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. The same thing happens with the haunt for jackals in Isaiah 34, 13. 
After the fortress is overtaken by thorns and wild animals, it becomes a haunt for jackals. But here, in chapter 35, verse 7, in the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. The destruction of Isaiah 34 is reversed in chapter 35. The Garden of Eden is, in a sense, being recreated, and God's judgment is being reversed. This imagery calls us back to the time of the Exodus, when the Israelites were led out of slavery in Egypt and cried out for water. God caused water to flow from the rocks, from the dry ground. Once again, God will cause water to flow forth from dry ground in Isaiah 35. All of this is a picture of a God who cares for us and provides for us and shepherds us and nourishes us. Even in the darkest and most dangerous of places and times, God is at work and God is going before us to prepare the way to take us to that place of hope and joy and life. At the very end of this poem, Isaiah gives us a powerful picture of the return of the people from uh, people of, from, of Judah from exile into Babylon in, in the middle of this new reality of what was once the desert as the people of God are making their way back to Jerusalem we are told that God will make a way for them a highway verses 8 and 9 of chapter 35 and a highway will be there it will be called the way of holiness it will be for those who walk on that way the unclean will not journey on it wicked fools will not go about on it no lion will be there nor any ravenous beast they will not be found there in the first place this highway this way of holiness is only going to be for those who know and love God and whom God knows no fools no unclean only those who are in that covenant relationship the people of Judah are safe from all those who might oppose them. Not only that, they no longer need to fear any wild animals. Lions and ravenous beasts like jackals will simply not be there. Remember last week's passage from chapter 11, verses 1 to 10? It ties in very well with the theme that we discovered there. There we were told that the wolf would live with the lamb, that the leopard would lie down with the goat, and that children would play around the den of cobras and the nests of vipers and they wouldn't need to worry about being harmed. Then finally, the clearest statement yet that Isaiah is talking about a return to Jerusalem referred to now as Zion. Last part of verse 9 and verse 10. But only the redeemed will walk there and those the Lord has res rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. To those who first heard or read Isaiah's words, the promise was clear. When it comes to the first horizon of Isaiah's prophecy, the people received the good news that God would bring them home and that their time of exile was almost over. And in a very real sense, the sorrow and sighing would flee away for those who had grown up in exile and longed for home. But this is something that is even more true in the second horizon, in Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. And even more so still when Christ will come again and the new creation will come into being, the third horizon. One day, all sorrow and sighing will flee away for good. In C.S. Lewis's uh, classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there is this prophetic poem 
that speaks to this same kind of hope. In the story, for those who might not be familiar uh, with uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the lion, Aslan, stands in for Christ. And like Christ, there is a, a prophecy that one day Aslan will return. And the poem puts it this way. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again, to say it as they would say it. These words from C.S. Lewis were meant as an encouragement toward the hope of the coming of Aslan. The words from Isaiah 35 were meant as an encouragement toward the hope of the things to come for the ancient people of Judah. And they are meant to point to joy and hope for us today, too. They are meant to give us space. They, they point to hope, they point to joy, but they also are meant to give us space, sacred space, to acknowledge our losses, to engage our grief, and to surrender our sorrow to God. Not in the sense that we have to get rid of our griefs and sorrows, not at all, but in the sense, as the Apostle Paul reminds us, that yes, in, in 1 Thessalonians, yes, we do grieve. We do grieve. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope as the rest of the world grieves. We grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We have hope, and we all have losses and sorrow that we carry. So during this season of Advent, when we often feel these things more acutely, we offer you the opportunity to come forward in our Lights of Hope portion of the service. You may have lost a loved one, in this past year or years ago. You may have lost a job or your financial security or an important relationship. We may have loved ones, people in our lives who are running from God, fearful of God, or angry at God. Or we or someone we love may have received a frightening diagnosis. There are many ways we can experience loss in our beautiful but broken world. We invite you, as you would like, to come forward and light a candle in honor of whatever sorrow or loss you carry. I will lead us in an opening prayer. And then as Megan sings, you are invited to come forward to take the taper, to light one of the candles for each of the losses that you'd like to name, and then return to your seats. There's nothing magical about candles. They are simply here uh, as a stand-in to represent uh, both our pain and the hope that we have in Christ, a sort of visual act of prayer. After we finished, we finished, I will pray over all of us. As you come forward, we will meet you at the table to assist you. And once you have lit your candles, if you would like prayer, you can go to either of these corners over here and either a couple of pastors will be there or members of our care team will be there to pray for you. You can tell them a specific need that we'd like prayer for or you can uh, simply ask someone to pray over you as, as God leads them. You don't have to tell them anything. Speaking of the care team, uh, I'm very proud and thankful for the work that they have been doing and for the service that they offer us. If you're interested in having a member of our care team come alongside you and to support you in your own dark or challenging time, your painful season, to, to, to listen to you, to be present, to pray for you, 
just go to this address that's on your screen, uh, the care team page at ecclife.net slash care, and let us know, and we will reach out to you. So I'm going to invite you first that you would join me in a few seconds of silence, and then I'll lead us together in a responsive prayer. And at the end of each brief request that I will lift up, uh, I will say, Lord, in your mercy, and you are invited to say, hear our prayer. First of all, let's go for a moment of silence before we begin. Father God, you sent Jesus into the world to proclaim good news to those who are poor. We lift up our own financial difficulties and burdens to you today. And we lift up those whom we know who are living in financial difficulty. Lord, in your mercy. Sovereign Lord, you poured out your spirit upon Jesus in order that he might bind up broken hearts for healing. We lift up our broken hearts to you and we lift up those whom we know whose hearts are devastated by life's losses. Lord, in your mercy. And Father, you anointed Jesus as the promised liberating king that he might proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. We lift up those we know who are trapped in dark and difficult situations in life. Lord, in your mercy. And Jesus, you came to give to the grieving, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. We ask that you give us hope in the midst of our darkness. May we know that the light shines in the darkness and that the darkness does not overcome it. Lord, in your mercy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, listen to the prayers of your people, we pray, and grant to all, especially those who are bereaved and troubled this Christmas season, your promised comfort, strength, and ultimate victory. We place our hope in you today. Lord, in your mercy. Amen. Amen.